We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also with us once again is uh, longtime contributor Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Good evening, Ross. Good evening. And rounding out the table, uh, we have got soon-to-be longtime contributor Brian Hugh, presumably, hopefully, uh, soon-to-be longtime contributor, uh, who, of course, is the founding editor of New Bloom Magazine. It's great being here. A uh, bit of a special show we've got for you today. I'm going to set aside the entire program to discuss President Tsai Ing-wen's first hundred days in office. Uh, of course, last Sunday marked the 100th day, meaning today is uh, the 105th day. So uh, I guess this is the first 105 days show. Uh, not exactly 100 days, but close enough. Close enough for government work, as they say. Uh, and just looking at uh, what most media types have had to say this week, it does seem like the overwhelming narrative uh, that we're hearing is pretty negative. Pretty negative. We're hearing a lot of, you know, the, uh, the honeymoon is over. We've been hearing a lot of people saying basically that uh, following, you know, the high post-election hopes, uh, many voters are already disenchanted with uh, what they regard as the Tsai administration's lackluster performance uh, and inability to deliver on key promises. Uh, we see this rather negative view reflected in uh, the raft of polling numbers that were released this week. Uh, basically, across the board, we've been, we see declines in approval ratings, increases in disapproval ratings. Uh, I'm just going to cherry pick one more or less randomly. Uh, the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation uh, shows size approval rating has fallen 17.6 percentage points to 52.3. Uh, while the disapproval rating has increased 24 percentage points to 33.2. So uh, kind of the trend there uh, that we're seeing everywhere else. So that's what the pundits say, and that's what the polling has to say. Uh, we're going to try to figure out where all this negativity is coming from uh, and whether or not it's fair. So uh, that's kind of the question for the whole show today, uh, but I'll let our two guests take a quick stab at it just to get the ball rolling. Uh, and to do that, let's split up the question into two big chunks. Uh, first, the domestic achievements of the Tsai administration, uh, and then what's going on on the cross-strait front. Uh, so first, let's take on uh, the domestic. Uh, and Gavin, just to uh, remind all of our listeners what's been going on over the last 105 days or so, uh, give us a rundown of some of the domestic controversies slash maybe achievement sort of issues over the last 105 days. Well, as you were talking about the polls there, Keith, I think the best one, the most comprehensive poll actually appeared in the Apple Daily, which broke down the economy, cross-strait ties, judicial reform and transitional justice. Now, size satisfaction ratings were down to less than 50% in all of these four areas. And, of course, all these four areas, those being the economy, judicial reform, transitional justice and cross-strait ties, have borne the brunt of much of the criticism. Mm. She's also faced criticism for, let's call them the more pro-independence-leaning clique within the DPP. Mm -hmm. And rather vocal Uli Pei, he's a former presidential advisor under Chen Shui-bian, he came out and criticised President Tsai for putting people in her cabinet from previous administrations. And Wu argued that this was no way to go ahead with government if she plans to push forward with reforms. Of course, reform was being judicial reform, economic reform and transitional justice. Mm. He questioned basically ooh, questioned two of the uh, appointments, or two big appointments basically, Lin Chuan being Premier and David Lee as Foreign Minister. Mm. Now, who said the two that, biggest appointments the basically, right there. Basically, yeah, yeah. The two rather important ones. Not but, he, like, but, but he didn't question his relative, who's also no, one of the most significant members of the government and served in previous governments. He's, Joseph Wu he's in the National is who you're talking Council. about right there. I think basically Wu's... Was, the uh, elder Wu was talking about previous not 
DPP governments. Of course, he said of the Premier, who said that Lynn was overly conservative on economic issues. Mm. And as for the Foreign Minister, David Lee, he said, well, he disapproved of his appointment because of questions over where he stands on the one-China policy, the one-China principle, and the 1992 consensus. All right, so that's uh, one chunk of controversy that we're going to be talking about more in the show. Uh, but let's uh, let's let's just throw out a little bit of a timeline. So the the the, the major controversies we've seen so far would be the labor issues, uh, the nuclear issues. What else comes to mind? The judicial issues. Mm-hmm. The judicial appointments, which we'll also be talking about in a little and bit. And of course, the tra- the famous, infamous, however you want to look at it, transitional justice. Right. Okay. And of course, the economy, because everybody's mm-hmm. wondering where their money's gone. Exactly. When, when, when is that going to pick up? Okay. So that's uh, just to give a sense of uh, what some of the big issues uh, we're going to be talking about today are. Uh, and uh, just to kind of uh, retouch on uh, some of the stuff that Gavin was just saying uh, and maybe wrap it up in a little bow, uh, here's what I see as the major thrust of the uh, criticism that the Tsai administration is getting. Uh, basically, the gist of it is people are saying, you know, her policies are stalled, uh, they're incoherent, she has no core values, she's just kind of reacting to uh, the crisis of the moment, the criticism of the moment. Uh, and by trying to please everyone, she's uh, pleasing no one, uh, kind of w- w- going hand in hand with what Gavin was saying a second ago. You know, she's she's appointing a lot of these more blue-leaning type officials, not really uh, holding firm on uh, what many of the deep greens would like to see. Uh, and because of that, it's it's hard to, uh, you know, make a decisive turn away from the policies of the uh, Ma administration. So in many ways, it's just a continuation that we're seeing there. All right, I'm going to turn this over uh, to our patient panelists that have been sitting there uh, for so long already and just uh, put the question to you. Uh, Are those criticisms fair or do they leave something out? And uh, let's throw it over to Ross first. Well, the criticisms are fair if you look at it from the perspective of during the election campaign, uh, what kind of promises were made. And not so much specific promises, but as you alluded to, promises of this broader issue of change or reform or everything the incumbent government was doing policy-wise, whether economic policy or cross-strait policy, et cetera, was bad. They are bad, will be better. But we haven't really seen implementation of the better yet, and that's inevitably going to lead to frustration when you promise people something, but you don't deliver it, then they're going to be frustrated, and we see that in the falling poll numbers. All right, tossings over to Brian. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the issue with the Thai administration is that the conflicting imperatives of that, it came into power with all this message of hope and change, but now it's accommodates itself to the system and to the establishment. Um, so, I mean, there has been big things, you know, for example, you know, transitional justice legislation and KMT party assets. Um, I mean, those are big things. But the issue is that the Thai administration does seem to want to please anybody. And, you know, by doing so, it's not pleasing anybody because it's, yeah. But uh, the, the problem with the party assets law or transitional justice issues is it doesn't really impact the day-to-day lives of most of the people in Taiwan. So for people who voted primarily based on economic concerns, which really was the number one talking point of Tsai and her team during the election. Their number one talking point, number one justification for voting for Tsai Ing-wen was she would improve economic conditions for the individual, the average person here in Taiwan. It was not vote for me because I'm going to pursue transitional justice or vote for me because I'm going to go after party assets. However, in the first 100 days, we see the focus is on the transitional justice, apologies to Aboriginal, uh, discussions about judicial reform, and much less focus on the economic issues. And again, that's what people really did vote for this team uh, on was their commitments to do something that would jumpstart the economy. She's got herself in a bit of a pickle there, isn't she? I mean, let's take one example being the holidays, of course. The infamous, do we give people back their seven days off and do we have a five-day working week and what do we do? Well, well, the thing there, Gavin, is that not only was the rollout of the policy somewhat confused, but it it does nothing to spur the economy. So even if uh, there had been a consensus among government officials and the executive agencies, legislators, industry leaders on what the new uh, paid holiday system should be. Implementing it would not have spurred economic growth or created new jobs other than maybe a minimal uptick in consumer spending. But it certainly is not something dramatic that, that would have helped the economy. So ha- even if they had not botched the rollout, 
people would have forgotten that about that pretty quickly. I don't think it would have much impact on falling poll numbers. I don't mm. know. Probably would have because it has that, of course, because, of course, she's peeved off not only the workers who want holidays, she's also successfully peeved off the factory and company owners mm. who don't want holidays. And she's taken basically flack from both of them. You're appeasing this lot, come it from the workers, and you're appeasing them, come it from the business owners. Mm. All right. Well, we do need to move on to uh, cross-strait issues in just a second, uh, but I'm going to let Brian have the closing word for this uh, opening volley right here. I mean, that does seem like a you know a very good example of how it's size caught between two audiences, and you know by not taking a strong stance or con- a consistent stance, you know that alienates both of them. Mm. I mean, just I think we really just have seen a decline in the messaging of the time. To the general public since her mm. campaign. She hasn't really been able to communicate effectively with the public the same way she did during election season. All right. Uh, so that is uh, the opening thoughts that we're going to have uh, right there. But uh, let's move on to the second uh, set of issues, which would be uh, cross strait issues. Uh, here again, uh, many are criticizing the Tsai administration for kind of a stall out. Uh, there haven't you know, uh, relations are basically frozen, uh, at least officially. The uh, Chinese government says that they are not in communication with the Tsai administration. We can find a couple of uh, examples where, you know, some kind of informal communication certainly did go on. But at least that's the official message right now. No communication because uh, there was no uh, acknowledgement of the 1992 consensus, or at least no acceptance of it. Uh, so... The I guess the the what the critics would be saying is, uh, you know, if if she wanted to maintain good relations with uh, China, she should have, uh, you know, acknowledged the 1992 consensus. Uh, The flip side of that is that would have been obviously a political suicide domestically. Uh, So, Brian, is this just another example of uh, the Thai administration uh, trying its best to kind of wend its way between, you know, conflicting imperatives? Um, Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Tsai was very strategically ambiguous on the 1992 consensus. She can't alienate China too much, but she can't, you know, say I acknowledge it either because that would alienate her supporters. Um, So, you know, she kind of waffled around it, referred to like the facts of the 1992 consensus, but of the 1992 talks, but not the consensus itself. It was a historical fact. That's right. That we acknowledge. Um, which is actually, you know, the DPP kind of changing its views because historically it just did not acknowledge this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in many ways, the Chen Strapian administration still weighs over Thai. And, you know, whether domestically or internationally, these things are bound up. So I think part of Thai is kind of really moderate line, which is not pleasing people, is just not wanting to come off as, you know, particularly extreme mm-hmm. when cross-street relations are concerned. Mm-hmm. Well, she's also, there has been arguments that she's been rather, not selective, but she's only bothered to make an attempt to contact the other side when there's been an incident. I mean, two incidents that come to mind where she needed to contact China, one being the bus, of course, that had an accident and burnt, and 24 Chinese nationals died. The tourist bus, yeah. tourist bus, and the other being, of course, the errant firing of a an anti-ship missile into the Taiwan Strait. Which we'll talk about a little bit more today. And basically, it has been argued that she's only bothered to contact China because she had to in these two occasions. The rest of the time, it's been like a no-go. So, so yeah, Ross, I mean, uh, is, is there more that the Thai administration could be doing? Well, uh, the distinction that we should keep in mind in discussing the various issues vis-a-vis China-Taiwan and framing the relationship is... You could frame the relationship in one way, but then the next step is how do you actually implement that? So, for example, even if Tsai were to acknowledge or agree to the 1992 consensus or say something about it that makes China happy, that doesn't mean you take it to a next step and and implement the trade in services or the trade in goods agreement the way they're currently written. She could try and reopen the negotiations to get a better deal for Taiwanese companies. So it's more than just acknowledging or not acknowledging the 1992 consensus. It's, you know, where do you take it from there? So you could acknowledge the 1992 consensus and then say, we want some more safeguards for Taiwanese who are being uh, repatriated from third countries over to China. That's been a controversial issue as well with the arrests of Taiwanese in places like Kenya and Cambodia and Philippines, etc. So it's more than just acknowledging or not acknowledging the 1992 consensus. And that's why the point that Gavin made is, is so interesting about, well, she's only talking to them when there's some kind of crisis. So how do we move from talking on a more regular basis? So you know, acknowledging the 92 consensus, we know, would facilitate more talks on a broader range of issues. And it wouldn't just be a question of uh, Thai reaching out when there's some kind of crisis. It, w- it would 
create an environment where the two sides are talking at a more working level, bureaucratic level, ministerial level, which is what occurred during the Ma administration. And that's but not necessarily a bad thing to have the two sides talking. But it's not the Thai administration that has said that they are, are, are closing off official relations. I mean, uh, Brian, what, what are your thoughts? on Is, is there really uh, what, what could the Thai administration do when the official policy of the Chinese government is to not hold relations? That's not a Thai policy. Mm, that's true. I mean, I think Thai was, you know, wanting to come off as the less aggressive party or the party willing to more compromise, which is why, you know, there's this kind of middle of the road, you know, historical facts thing of the 1992 talks. But, you know, China reacted the way it did kind of predictably. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of not really the size of ministry's fault, I think. But the question now is that within the first 100 days, there's been so much focus on the 92 consensus, like, you know, inauguration speech. Everyone was waiting just for the, her to mention the 92, 92 consensus or to not mention it. But, you know, what is her long-term cross-strait policy? I mean, during past election, it was open that, you know, she wants to sign the RCEP with China, which is a multilateral trade agreement, but still a trade agreement nonetheless. So now going forward, I think, is what is the concrete policy plans for cross-strait relations on the part of the Thai administration. So you think that there are constructive steps that she could take, even given the current climate? Um, well, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is kind of for, for show or for the media. I mean, this is her first 100 days. So the question now is... What will her long-term policy with China be? So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. All right. Does she have one? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, whatever it is, it does need to be something that the other side would also uh, be comfortable engaging uh, on. So it has to – the basis of the policy, the, the content of the policy has to be something that the other side uh, – you know, we could say the other side's unreasonable, Keith. Uh, but it, 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 in order to get them to the table, the, the, the basis of, of the policy still has to be something that will bring them to the table – uh, and then, as I said, so you're saying the 92 consensus does matter. Well, we know it's certainly at least one way to get China to come to the table. There might be other ways to frame the relationship between the two sides. Uh, you know, different different wording, rearranging the, the the 92 and the consensus, and throwing in some other nouns, verbs, and adjectives, and it might work. Uh, but until we get to that point, then there is going to be no talks, and, and there's a practical impact. I mean, we shouldn't forget the practical impact of no talks, and that includes things like economic issues, trade agreements, the repatriation of criminals, and uh, other things that do impact people on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. I have a question. Whatever happened to the Cross-Strait Agreements Oversight Act? Am I the only person that's forgotten about this? <laughs> well, uh, it, it, to the extent that it's not moving through the legislative UN, where the DPP enjoys a wide majority, that, that just keeps the issue uh, out of the public eye, keeps it out of the media. The talking heads like us are not going to be commenting on it or criticizing it, etc. It basically means that Thai's government does not have to confront the possibility of signing a trade agreement. I mean, either they're for or they're not for a trade agreement with China, whether it's over services or goods. Precursor to moving forward on a services agreement or a trade and goods agreement is having the cross-strait mechanism monitoring act. So if they could keep it off the legislative UN agenda, then they don't have to talk about signing services or goods agreements. And one could argue that if the lawmakers actually passing this cross-strait oversight agreement could be sort of a passive way towards actually moving towards talks with China. I think it's very true. I mean, you know, actually, during the Ma Xi meeting, when that happened, you know, Tsai, actually, what she said was that she would also be willing to meet with Xi as president of Taiwan, and that she'd be willing to go to Beijing for that. That's actually on the record. So, I mean, it is actually very opaque what the Tsai administration does intend in long term in terms of cross-strait policy. Mm. All right. Uh, well, we're going we're gonna to have to leave that sort of broad conversation uh, there for now. When we get to the end of the show, I think we're going to return to some of these broad questions. But before we do, uh, we have uh, some actual news that happened this week uh, that we actually do need to attend to. Uh, We can, of course, look at these uh, most especially through the lens of, you know, how is the Thai administration doing? What is the current state of politics in Taiwan? But, uh, you know, we do we do have some of the nitty gritty uh, business of news uh, to get to. So let's get to it. First up. Uh, Tai has made a lot of controversial appointments so far, as we've already discussed on the show. Uh, as Gavin mentioned, uh, some of those cabinet picks that she made was called into question. Uh, in addition, the Judicial UN picks have been called into question. Uh, this week, got a couple of new appointments, uh, not quite as controversial as some we've seen before, but uh, still raising some questions in some quarters. Uh, first... Gavin, the Straits Exchange Foundation has a new head. Finally, yes, of course, the Straits Exchange Foundation, which is the basically semi-pseudo-official cross-strait negotiating body, 
hasn't had a head since I believe the 14th of May mm. when the former chairman of the Straits Exchange Foundation stepped down. Mm-hmm. Now, this week, of course, they nominated Tian Hong Mao as mm. to head the Straits Exchange Foundation. And, of course, he's a former foreign minister and representative to the UK. Now, yesterday, that being Thursday of this week, Mainland Affairs Council Minister Catherine Jung touted the decision to appoint the former foreign minister to head the SEF and his job now is basically the Thai administration's top China negotiator and Zhang said that his appointment is rather good because he has a deep understanding of China and it will move across straight ties forward and he also enjoys support from across Taiwan's political spectrum mm. which is all very nice unfortunately Zhang Jun of course is China's top Taiwan affairs minister he said the key to resuming cross strait talks does not lie in the choice of who heads the straits exchange foundation but in political foundations All right. So uh, originally I was going to kind of try to frame this uh, bit of news as, you know, furthering our conversation on uh, the Thai's administration's, you know, official picks uh, to various government bodies. I think we've basically done that. Let's instead take uh, continue our conversation on cross-strait relations. And uh, uh, Ross, would you see this pick as being one of the things the Thai administration could potentially do? I mean, we just heard from that... Uh, Uh, Zhang Jiajun saying, you know, who, whoever fills this is not going to be crucial to the relationship. But, you know, in, in, in some ways, uh, does this pick really have an impact on uh, the trajectory of those relations? Highly unlikely. Uh, mm. We've seen a, a pattern um, that began under Chen and continued through the Ma administration where foreign policy decisions uh, as well as China policy decisions are made in the presidential office for the most part. So the head of the Mainland Affairs Council, the head of the Straits Exchange Foundation, Minister of Foreign Affairs, increasingly these are, these are becoming administrative positions. They're, they're not the, the center of policy ideas and policy making, which again is going to be made by the president and her closest national security aides in the presidential office. And, and given that in, in the Maid administration, most of the cross-strait relations moved from the Straits Exchange Foundation and its counterpart in the mainland to government agencies, uh, both from the Taiwan side and the China side. So we got away from the unofficial negotiators to the official negotiators, which was actually a good achievement. Uh, this position becomes increasingly irrelevant. Uh, it has to be filled. It's on the org chart. There, there needs to be a chairman. Uh, but uh, unlikely that this person, well, whoever it is, would have a significant role in, in cross-straits relations, whether it's Uh, enunciating the policy. I mean, for example, I, I can't imagine Tian Hong Mao going all over Taiwan saying, like, here are good reasons why we need to develop deep relations with China. On the other hand, I don't imagine him going all over Taiwan saying, here are reasons why we need to be uh, weary of China. Nor do I see him being involved in, in, in the real procedural aspects of trade relations with China or, again, the criminal repatriation issues. I, I just don't see him playing an instrumental role in any of these aspects. Mm. All right, uh, so we're going to uh, tie that one up in a bow and move on. Uh, there were some judicial yuan picks as well. Uh, the administration decided to nominate the former Grand Justice uh, Xu Zhongli uh, to be president of the judicial yuan and uh, Supreme Court Judge uh, Tsai Zhongtun uh, as vice president. Uh, you find folks uh, actually talked about this issue while I was on break. So uh, if folks want to hear about the controversy that's been going on with those picks, uh, you can listen to the show two weeks ago and uh, hear all about it. But for now, we have a whole lot more to get to, so we're going to have to move on. Ah, and move on we shall. Uh, let's pick up on a major unfolding drama uh, that has colored the first several months of Tsai's tenure, that being the project of transitional justice as uh, some would call it. Uh, well, that project advanced apace this week. Uh, the cabinet has now officially launched its new committee tasked with handling the, quote, ill-gotten assets of the KMT. A uh, whole lot of air quotes uh, that we're going to have to throw into this conversation of that, of course, because, uh, well, there are very loaded terms that you feel differently about uh, depending on which side of the political divide you find yourself on. Uh, so we're going to try to navigate all that. But uh, Gavin, tell us about this new committee. Yeah, this committee is being headed by former lawmaker Wellington Goo. 
He, of course, has only just become a former lawmaker because he couldn't continue to be a lawmaker when he was put in charge of the committee. Now, the committee was established based on the recently passed, and I love the name of this, the Statute on Handling the Inappropriate Assets of Political Parties and Their Affiliated Organisations. Ooh, rolls out the time. Who came out with that one? Rolls out the really? time. Probably sounds better in Chinese. I'm sure in Chinese it's, it's just poetry. You should have called it something simply did. What is it? Hiaputao, if you want to say it properly. <laughs> yeah, basically, that, that's his acronym. Basically. Okay, you just coined an acronym. All right, I'm sure it's going to catch oh, no. on. Shiap. Put off, oh, I don't know. I can't even say it. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> All right. So we uh, a little bit of disdain there. So what, what is this committee supposed to be doing? I mean, they're basically... Well, this committee technically is tasked with looking at political parties and illegal assets from political parties. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's there is allegations that it's only looking at illegal assets from the KMT, mm-hmm. which, of course, because it started, it's looking into assets from 1945. And, of course, there was only one political party in Taiwan for many, many years, that being the KMT. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the KMT has charged this committee with being illegal and says it's looking for a constitutional ruling on whether the committee is even allowed to operate as the government wishes it to. All right. So, uh, like we've kind of hinted at, uh, this uh, is, of course, seen as a purely partisan move uh, that's... Um, basically, uh, as some would put it, an attempt to gut the KMT of its resources. Uh, people on the other side might see it as a move towards transitional justice and, uh, you know, moving towards a fuller form of democracy in Taiwan. But it, it seems like even folks that might see it that way, as uh, Ross has sort of hinted at, uh, won't necessarily uh, be giving President Tsai any credit uh, for this, because it's, of course, going to be a very complicated process, a very fraught process. Uh, I don't necessarily know that it makes her administration look good, even if it uh, is moving forward. Uh, Brian, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, Tsai needs to avoid the appearance of politically persecuting the KMT. I mean, again, the issue of the Chen Shui-bian administration, that, you know, the one non-KMT president, as soon as he was out of office, you know, was, came under criminal charges. Like, So this is, so I if, mean, this if, is just if, another yeah. example of, you know, there's a very sort of narrow lane that she needs to exactly. get into. Uh, on, on, on the one side, there's looking like uh, political persecution. On the other side, uh, there's, you know, there are deep greens that would like to see political uh-huh. persecution. So, you know, is, is there a path forward for her on this? I mean, that's issue i mean especially what if there are you know i mean that's tied to recent scandals with megabank like what if ma does come up as implicated in a lot of things or you know the fact that turning over the rock or whatever like all these things have been buried like you know that questions the nature of taiwan's so-called democratic transition like mm. or the fact that it happened peacefully but... or, the, or, or questions whether or not the government is capable capable of you know uh carrying forward any kind of justice that has uh, a political dimension to it. Mm-hmm. More or less. And and that's that's the kind of the issue. I mean, Tsai has a really del- delicate line to kind of balance here. Um, I mean, luckily, the, the KMT, I mean, on, well, from my view, under Hong doesn't really have the ability to take advantage of this, but I can see under certain circumstances in which the KMT could actually kind of frame this up as the DPP going after it. I mean, Hong has just kind of revealed that, you know, she has a very privileged view of the KMT in, as, in relation to the state so, you know, that only kind of confirms the kind of recurrent or the notion that, you know, there's still a very authoritarian aspect of the KMT. Are you, you, you kind of referring to the National Palace Museum thing, saying that that's also part of KMT assets? Um, yeah, there's that. Also, you know, Hong is just, you know, spouting off things daily. I mean, that's that's not surprising. But mm. when did she say that? She actually said that the, the she she was publicly quoted as saying that uh, the government at the time, the party, uh, during an era of war and, and frankly, chaos, uh, safeguarded these things and brought them to so Taiwan. So they belong to the KMT and not the state? You could find a lawyer that would argue anything, Gavin. You know that. That's true. That's true. That's tricky people, but, lawyers. But the, you know, the interesting here, thing here is saying the, the assets need to be disgorged so that the playing field can be level in, in Taiwan's democratic politics. On the other hand, the DPP has won three out of the last five presidential elections. So uh, you can't say that the playing field is unfair, actually. And they won a substantial majority in the legislative event, uh, despite the KMT having such an extraordinary amount of cash uh, and other assets. So clearly, the democracy has matured to the point where voters uh, are able to make decisions without uh, undue influence that could be uh, based on money that's spent on political campaigns. Mm. Just spending money on campaigns is simply not enough. That's the way, that's the odd way it's been framed, of course, isn't it? Was to, theoretically, the, the 
the DPP should be going after any political party that has seized any state assets and called them their own. Well, uh, another part of the problem with the approach of, of the law, with its wonderful acronym that Gavin has given us, <laughs> is, is that uh, it, 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 it's confiscatory, right? So instead of taking approach that says by a certain date, two years from now or five years from now, political parties can hold no more than X dollars of assets. Instead, it says the state is going to confiscate it from you. Uh, and there are very good arguments. Again, you know, it's up to the talent of the lawyers involved, to the extent there are any talented lawyers out there, uh, who, who, who could create arguments to say, no, this is you know, seizing personal property or, in this case, party property. And that, that's unconstitutional in a democracy, in a, in a country with, with rule of law. You, you don't just seize property from organizations. Mm. I've actually got it now. Here we go. It's the Shiap Patau. The Shiap Patau. Yeah, that's what. That's, that's, no, that, that's the acronym. There you go. That 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 rolls off a lot more easy. Okay, maybe maybe we can make that a thing. We're we're gonna try to make that a thing. All right. So uh, I think so far in the show we've gotten just a little bit of a sense of. Uh, why it has been so difficult for the Tsai administration to push those approval ratings up and uh, how even some of the things that were most popular when she came into power, uh, you know, once the rubber hits the road, the reality of those things uh, often doesn't look quite as good in practice. Uh, We're going to be talking about more uh, news from this week when we return. Got just a couple more stories to touch on. Uh, First, we've got a definitive report on what exactly happened with that misfired missile a couple months ago. And the Megabank saga continues with a high-profile resignation. Then we will take on the question, where does the Thai administration go from here? A little look to the future there. And then, and then, uh, for our podcast listeners specifically, as always, we'll round things out with a bonus story. This week we'll discuss a controversial video from a controversial rap group and why it's causing headaches for none other than Taipei Mayor Cohen uh, make sure to tune into the extended podcast edition of the show if you want to catch those extra segments. Uh, we bring those each and every week to the show. So, a whole bunch ahead. Keep it tuned for the rest of Taiwan This Week to catch it after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, and Brian Hugh. Jumping back into things, the ROC military has, of course, had a rough couple of months. Uh, there was the dog killing uh, that occurred uh, several months ago uh, on a military base. The uh, overturning of the tank just a couple weeks ago that left uh, four soldiers dead. And, uh, well, one of the worst incidents uh, to hit the military in the last couple of months is getting some closure this week. Uh, with a report detailing exactly how a Xiongfeng-3 supersonic anti-ship missile was accidentally launched from a Kaohsiung-based Qinqiang-class corvette, hitting a fishing boat and killing one on board. Uh, With all those fancy-sounding names, uh, sounds like something that shouldn't happen. Uh, But the Ministry of National Defense released a report this week explaining how it did. Gavin, how did it happen? Whoops. Whoops-a-daisy. Yeah, a bit of a whoops that, really, wasn't it? No, seriously, the Ministry of National Defence report came out and they basically concluded that it was a failure to follow protocol and poor supervision which led to the missile launch, which, of course, Mm. occurred... In fact, it didn't even... The ironic thing is it it didn't occur during an exercise at the Doing Naval Base. It actually occurred prior to the exercise actually beginning at the Naval Base. It sounds like the soldier was just kind of... It was just like a pre-practice sort of thing. Yeah, basically they were running through the motions before the actual exercise started. Yeah. Anyway, the MND report went on to say that poor management within the Navy was to blame and officers serving on the vessel in question were unfamiliar with the duties and procedures of weapons operations. That should be a big red flag when you've got like missiles and very sharp metal objects that are designed to kill people floating around, really, haven't you? I mean, that... Dear unfamiliar with the duties and procedures of weapons operations. That's almost as name as which way do I point this gun? 
Mm. Doesn't anyway, inspire a lot of con- confidence, no. No, no. But the Gaoshung District Court, the day before this happened, the, uh, the Gaoshung District Court moved to indict three naval personnel in connection with the accidental missile launch. Petty officer Gao Jiajun now faces charges of negligent homicide. He's the guy who hit the button? He's the guy that hit the button. While Petty Officer Chen Min Shou and Lieutenant Xu Bo Wei are going to be charged with neglect of duty. And I believe from memory, the Petty Officer Gao faces up to 10 years in prison for negligent homicide, while the Petty Officer Chen and Lieutenant Xu face up to five years in prison for neglect of duty. Mm. All right. And of course, what made this all in more embarrassing was the day after this report came out, the gun fell off a tank at another exercise. When it when they fired it. When they fired it, yes. Mm, it's the same kind of tank that fell off the bridge a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, exactly the same C-11 main mm-hmm. battle tank. Mm. Okay, so uh, that's just one of many problems that the um, army has been facing. Of course, uh, you know, as we discussed last week, Tsai has made it very clear that she is uh, looking, uh, she's hoping to carry out some kind of military reform. Uh, going forward, uh, but we re- really don't have any specifics of what exactly uh, that is going to mean. Uh, so, uh, Brian, I mean, uh, y- is this an issue that's contributing to her low polling numbers, and is there a way for Tsai to turn this into a positive? I mean, this is a problem that Tsai inherited because, you know, problems of discipline and, you know, failure of oversight have been systematic in the military for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I, I do think Tai actually does want to kind of make a show of it in order to prove that under her administration, she can kind of turn things around. I mean, we'll see how successful this is, as with, you know, everything else that Tai has on her plate to reform and so forth. But, yeah. Mm. Uh, real quick before we move on, uh, Ross, would you agree with that? Like, just 100 days in, uh, can we still look th- at this as a problem that has been inherited? Well, uh, I, I, there is institutional rot, frankly, in the military. We know that. Uh, it does need better leadership. It needs more inspiring leadership. It, it's not an institution that's highly regarded by the public, which is unfortunate given Taiwan's very dangerous security situation vis-a-vis China. Well, Tsai did uh, call on soldiers to uh, go uh, out in uniform to various, you know, malls and stuff to show not, surprise. Not, not enough, right? That's mm-hmm. not going to change how people perceive the military. It's certainly not going to make the military more attractive to people as a career. So we're not going to address the conscription versus professionalization of the military issue Either uh, it's a leadership issue, uh, telling people, telling soldiers to wear their uniform in public, or Tsai putting a military helmet on at exercises, which gets more uh, humorous responses than respectful responses, is, is simply not enough. There's a lot more work to be done, and, and part of its budget as well. I mean, the, the the allocation in the new budget for military actually has uh, is, is been a disappointment to a number of domestic and overseas analysts as well. Mm. They were expecting a more substantial investment in the military. Um, so, I found that, that interesting which when she said this week, because of course Armed Forces Day is September the 3rd. That's mm-hmm. tomorrow, basically. We're recording yeah. this on Friday. Armed Forces Day is on Saturday. I think when, she, when I heard that she said the army should go out in uniforms, I was rather aghast about that, actually. Because it, one could argue it was it, it's a double-edged sword, without making any military puns there at all. Because you, you have people here that do remember when the military were walking around the street. And mm. to put the military back on the street in uniform seems a bit self-defeating to me. I mean, Well, I, but I, Gavin, you have experience in other locations, both in Asia or places further afield, where... where the military is held in high regard by the public, and part of that is is being visible in a positive way. You know, seeing young men who who are doing their national service, uh, going fr- traveling from their homes to their posts. Uh, you know, even if you see them on, on the MRT, uh, mm. th- th- there's a positive way to do it, and there's a positive way to reinforce the image of the military as as an important institution that deserves the people's support and respect. We're not there in Taiwan. Uh, very quickly, then we're I mean, to move on. Back to the history of martial law, I mean, there is a very politicized side to it, which is that the military is, you know, the the symbols of the military are very ROC, which are tied to the KMT. Mm. So, I mean, there's also just very vocal, you know, old veterans that are very deep blue and very anti-Tai, and they've been using these recent incidents to kind of attack her. Mm. So, I mean, if, I think, and Tsai wants to turn around the image of the military to make it more neutral, mm-hmm. but that, that's also a challenge, especially appealing to young people mm-hmm. who, you know, do not identify with the KMT. All right. Well, uh, we have one more news story to get to before we get to the end of the show, so we're going to have to uh, rush through it as uh, fast as we can. I don't think that we're going to dwell on this one too, too much, uh, because it's really just an update of what we were talking about last week. 
But uh, the management seems to be jumping ship at Megabank. Uh, this Wednesday saw the resignation of Mega Financial Holding Company Chairman Shou Kuang-si, Gavin. Yeah, Shu Guangxi tendered his resignation after only two weeks in the office in his job. There you go. Two weeks in the job. Fancy me to do that, eh? Brilliant. I'd love to do that. I've worked here for two weeks, now I'm quitting. Uh, of course, he did quit under a bit of a storm. It wasn't like, you know... He wasn't, I don't think he's had a good two weeks. He has, he's had a bit of a troubled two weeks, quite obviously. He also resigned as a, his post as a board member of the Troubled Bank. Mm. Now, of course, he was appointed chairman of Mega Financial Holdings earlier this month, and he did enjoy the support of Premier Lin Chuan. Unfortunately, then the poop hit the fan. Yucky. The bank got dragged into it, into American courts. He got <laughs> fined $180 million US dollars for violating anti-money laundering laws in the United States. And, of course, the bank is under investigation here in Taiwan at the moment for possible violations of Taiwan's Money Laundering Control Act, the Islands Banking Act. And just to add one more, it's also being investigated for possible violations of the Financial Holding Company Act. Mm. He stepped down, but he was in America when he stepped down. Yeah, this is a, it's a theme for America this year. Because, of course, he'd flown off to America to go and deal with fallout from the bank being fined in America. Reminds me of Wang Qihui when he resigned in America. Maybe he found out something he didn't really want to find out when he was in America. Who knows? Okay, so here's how I'm going to frame uh, this question for you guys. Uh, it, this, this seems to me like perhaps another example of, uh, you know, how, 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 a lack of confidence in uh, the institutions of Taiwan to deal with these issues of corruption. I mean, in this case, uh, one of the main reasons that people have not been uh, confident in the leadership of Mr. Xiao is because uh, he was the president of the company going back to 2012, 2013, 2014. So if he's going to be the guy that's going to oversee, you know, some of the reform of this company, he, he, he was there when a lot of the bad stuff happened. Uh, and then in addition to this, there was uh, a lot of cri- criticism of the fact that the Financial Supervisory Commission uh, is leading the uh, investigation into Mega Bank uh, when they are also seen as, you know, uh, they were there the whole time. Why weren't they dealing with this earlier? Can we really trust them to deal uh, with this now? So that's some of the perception that the public uh, has going into uh, this whole controversy. Uh, and I think that that uh, goes some way uh, towards explaining some of the lack of confidence in some of the move uh, that the Thai administration has been making. Uh, Ross, what do you see there? I, I, I see more that the, it's a, another example of continued lack of leadership in institutions in Taiwan, whether it's the military like we were just talking about, uh, when we see uh, problems with transportation, building collapses during natural disasters, earthquakes, etc. Uh, after the fact, we find out that procedures weren't followed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's corruption, sometimes it's not. So in the case of Megabank, I wouldn't necessarily call it corruption. It's more a failure to follow procedures. Non-compliance. So, uh, correct. So so it, it, people were not stealing money from the bank. People were not taking bribes. They just weren't they, trying they, hard enough to prevent they, people they were from... Not, they were not vetting uh, mm-hmm. customers properly, customers right. who had a need to hide their mm-hmm. assets. Uh, but, but ultimately, it sort of flows up to the same conclusion, which is uh, people not doing their jobs thoroughly. Uh, whether it's a frontline staff or an executive staff. So we're talking about this gentleman who now has to resign his position uh, because everyone's pointing the finger at him saying, you know, you were at the bank at the time, then you were promoted, now you're quitting. It's clear that there's a breakdown, whether it's from the frontline all the way up to the executive suite uh, or in the case of government agencies in the ministerial suite uh, where people are just not doing their jobs and uh, they're held accountable Somewhat after the fact, there aren't serious penalties, frankly, uh, when they when they don't do their jobs properly, and, and it's a serious lack of leadership in Taiwan. And in some ways, that does come back to President Tsai's first hundred days, because people are also saying, President Tsai, be a leader, be a leader on economic issues, be a leader on cross trade issues. Don't don't sort of be in the middle on everything. So th- there there is something missing in Taiwan where we we don't have people in government or in business who are willing to say, the buck stops with me. I'm going to be the leader. Mm. I mean, for me, it's an open verdict whether this is gross incompetence or corruption. I mean, you know, innocent until proven guilty, I guess, in the case of Sho or the previous chairman, McKinney Tsai. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the issue now is that there is a, a, a huge problem about accountability between these bureaucrats. I mean, you know, uh, Megabank is is largely a state-run in- institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's interesting because when the scandal first broke, it was in connection to KMT party assets. So mm-hmm. a lot of people expected this was just going to be 
this happened under the Ma administration. It's probably corruption on the Ma uh, on the part of the Ma administration. So this will be an easy case of proving corruption by the Ma administration. But now the question is really like the Tsai administration. Like, did they just carry on, or just even kind of turn a blind eye to these kind of same practices? Did uh, did those practices continue into the Tsai administration? Exactly. Through yeah. I mean, going back to the issues of government appointments, especially under Ling Chen. So mm. yeah. Mm. Uh, now, clearly, we've been kind of a little negative today because we've been looking at all of the various uh, criticisms that the Tsai administration has faced and uh, why her poll numbers are dipping a little bit. Uh, but perhaps one one could make the argument that by leaving things so vague, by uh, not really cleaving too hard to any particular ideology or to any particular cause, uh, the Tsai administration has left the door open to, uh, you know, picking her fights uh, and she can be more selective in the future about where she wants to spend her uh, political capital. And she can kind of define, based on what uh, she's hearing from the public, what direction she wants to move forward in the next hundred days. Uh, so I'm curious if uh, you guys see any potential for that or if uh, all that political capital is already gone and, uh, you know, things are kind of scuttled before they've begun. Uh, Ross? The challenge she's facing with... Uh, outlining her plan for the next 100 days is she's busy fighting fires, as people like to say, for some of these ongoing issues, whether it's the problems with the military and, and defense, uh, procurement and accidents, spending, et cetera, uh, whether it's mega, uh, whether it's cross-strait relations. You know, the, there's a lot that she has to deal with right now, some of it, which is uh, – I wouldn't go so far as to call it crisis mode, but they're, they're just these very immediate things that need to be attended to. It's making it increasingly difficult to map out uh, things that are achievable mm-hmm. in the next 100 days. So uh, as a political advisor, I, I would caution her about uh, making any uh, too ambitious pronouncements about here's something we're going to do in the next hundred days. Be, mm. I'd be very, very careful about doing that. Mm. So she may be shackled by a lot of these little issues. Uh, Brian, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I do think it's a kind of classic question. You know, when when a political campaign comes into office with a message of hope and change, then they do have to accommodate to reality. At the same time, though, I do think that what people perceive as retrenchment on the part of the Thai administration, a lot of this was very clear in her, you know, publicly stated campaign platforms. Just, you know, nobody looked at the time because... Everyone was caught up in this moment of human change. So mm-hmm. a lot of these things regarding, let's say, transitional justice or you know, the KMT or the independence issue, that she backed down on these things. Like mm. That doesn't actually surprise me at all. All right. So we're uh, going to leave that whole set of questions right there. And uh, to our last kind of broad question for the show today, looking at the 100 days of uh, Tsai Ing-wen's uh, time in office— and we're just going to purely look at the uh, political questions of, you know, how is the DPP faring? How is the KMT faring? Uh, has the KMT political star risen once again, just after, you know, uh, six months since uh, the January election, which, of course, was disastrous for them? Uh, and the uh, reason that we would even ask this question is because uh, last weekend there was a little bit of a victory for the KMT down in Hualien City, where they won a mayoral by-election. Uh, the candidate, uh, Wei Jia Shen, uh, unseated the DPP from the region. So uh, KMT, you know, uh, first little victory in a while. Of course, uh, this is, you know, not a huge election. I think, uh, if, if I remember correctly, we're, we're talking about like 40,000 voters. You know, it's not it's not huge, but they won it handily. They won it by many percentage points. Uh, and so, you know, if you, if you ask some of the KMT stalwarts, they would say this uh, reflects... Uh, some negative feelings towards uh, the DPP, which, you know, we've discussed some of those on the show uh, today. So uh, the question I want to put to you guys is, is that assessment fair? Uh, and uh, furthermore, you know, is uh, is the KMT star rising? Should we uh, not count them out? I, I, I'd say let, we shouldn't read too much into this election. As you said, it's a small number of voters, largely driven by local personalities. The the guy who won could have easily been running under the banner of a different political party. These are local politicians who are who are very well known, uh, having worked in the local community, uh, really no national implications across Taiwan. And so we shouldn't take that away from this very local result. The interesting thing is the extraordinary and, and nasty reaction from a very well-known DPP politician and his criticisms of the voters for exercising their democratic choice 
to pick a party that wasn't his. Just don't Facebook angry, guys. You don't, you don't want to get on Facebook when you're angry. It's a bad idea. No, it's really a bad idea. Um, I mean, Wei Jiaxian is, has a very shady family background. I mean, his family is implicated in so many, you know, his, his father was arrested previously for vote fraud. As a you know, vote buying. We're talking a, about the KMT winner right there. Yep, that's right. And you know, I mean, the White Wolf, you know, Zhang Anle showed up to campaign for him. So his family, his his father is very well acquainted with him. He's a um, respected businessman, Zhang Anle. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, yeah, I don't think it's right to generalize about you know all of Taiwan, twenty million people from forty thousand voters. Also, that mm-hmm. is traditional KMT territory. So the fact that the DPP had made inroads into it in the past few years is is very surprising. So I think the DPP kind of expected too much in some sense. Yeah, I think definitely. It's, Hualien's always traditionally been local. It's like a local election. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the, like Ross said, the people that win elections there are well-known in the community, and that's why they win the election. They could stand for the I Love Bananas party. <laughs> Who doesn't love bananas? I lot, would vote for them. There is a lot of bananas in Hualien, so technically, yeah, you probably do quite well. So there you yeah. go. But again, the key thing here is, uh, I'd be curious to hear what Brian has to say about is, is the way that Duan Kong from, from the DPP reacted by, by criticizing the voters. Oh, you didn't vote for me. You know, you're horrible. What's wrong with you? And they, 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 that is unbecoming of a national political figure such as him. And uh, it's frankly unbecoming of the DPP. And I was, I was glad to see that other DPP leaders immediately criticized him for the way he reacted. I mean, yeah. I mean, the issue is that, you know, what if what sometimes there is extreme frustration within the DPP or the pan-green camp that people vote KMT, even in the case of extremely corrupt politicians or mm. politicians with very checkered criminal backgrounds. So I think that was just his expression of his frustration there. Mm. Um, Still, you don't want to call voters stupid. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's not going to do the DPP any good in Hualien if they really do want to, you know, convert it to pan-green territory. Mm. All right. So uh, that just gives a sense of a little bit of the current uh, political climate here in Taiwan coming out of Taiwan's first hundred days. Uh, And we're going to leave it there for the broadcast of the show. Gave, uh, I think, our listeners a lot to chew on, a lot to think about uh, as uh, we move into the next hundred days of the Thai administration. Uh, And with that, we're going to switch tracks entirely to a little bit of a spat that has at its center a controversial rap group. 911, and uh, we're going to play a little bit of the song that has got them into hot water right here. Oh my God. All right, and that uh, was just a little bit of uh, their song, Oh My God, and... Uh, Well, even if you do speak Chinese, uh, you probably couldn't have picked out too much of what the controversy was about right there because the controversy is not in the lyrics, it's not in the song, it's not even in the melody. Nobody's saying this is a terrible melody. The controversy all has to do with the unofficial version of uh, this video. Actually, uh, if you went and uh, tried to search this uh, even a couple days later, uh, a lot of people were very confused about what, what, what's this controversy about? Because uh, the official video is uh, very banal. It just has uh, clips from a number of uh, Taiwanese movies. And so a lot of people were scratching their head. Why is this so controversial? Well, uh, Brian, we are lucky to have you in studio right now because you actually have uh, been writing about this this week. And you can tell us. Why was this so controversial? Um, I was controversial because there was a depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, the video is, you know, it's about different religious figures just kind of partying and, you know, drinking and gambling and doing things like that and having fun. So strike number one, you don't depict the Prophet Muhammad. Strike number two, if you do depict the Prophet Muhammad, you do not have him drinking and gambling. That's right. Uh, that raises questions of freedom of expression and, you know, it raises the whole Charlie Hepto incident, which is, you know, very controversial. Right. Uh, a, a, a depiction of... The Prophet Muhammad that uh, prompted a terrorist attack. Uh, so let's give just a little bit more uh, background of how this uh, music video came to be even in the first place. This is a rap trio, 911, but they were collaborating with uh, a Malaysian singer. Mm-hmm. So they were collaborating with a Malaysian singer, uh, Namiwe, who is, you know, in Malaysia, he's caused a lot of controversy regarding the government or how he perceives discrimination against ethnic Chinese. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of provoked the government. Uh, he's also been very provocative on issues of religion in, in Malaysia, a majority Muslim country. Um, so this is another incident in point. But, you know, because a Taiwanese group was kind of caught up in this, this led to criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Okay. So a uh, big element of the story here. Uh, we probably don't need to dwell on this because we're more interested in uh, how this is playing domestically here in Taiwan. But uh, we should not leave out the fact that uh, their collaborator, uh, Nami Wei, 
uh, was arrested in Malaysia for, I guess, anti-defamation. You can't, you can't slander religion in Malaysia, mm. I guess, is the bottom line. So it's framed up as, you know, insulting religion, so, which in this case is Islam. I mean, that's, that's frequently used by the government as a way to crack down dissidents. You know, it doesn't matter if it, in, whether it, in terms of Islam or any other religion, that dissidents is cracked down on as religious kind of violating kind of religious taboos mm. but also issue is that they filmed in a mosque and you know did they have permission to do that mm-hmm. so that that's the other part of it all right so uh kind of just moving things uh, forward a little bit now where the controversy stands is uh, some are calling on uh, mayor Kowinja to uh nix these guys uh, as i guess they were spokesmen or or sort of the uh, faces of uh, the University Ad Games, which is coming up next year. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an issue because they they don't present a good face for Taiwan in that sense. Um, I mean, 911 has been also caught up in previous controversies, for example, against expats in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a question to begin with if they were good a good representation for the international world of Taiwan. Right. Just to uh, clue in some of our listeners who might not be familiar with that, uh, we're referring there to a song called Wai Guaren. It's kind of a play on words. It's not Wai Guaren, it's Wai Guaren. Uh, and just sort of uh, the, the the video as a whole. Uh, in that case, once again, the the main issue would be with the video uh, is portraying a lot of racial stereotypes. Uh, there's a big chunk of the video where uh, the group uh, performs in blackface, which I don't know maybe is not a hot topic in in Taiwan, but uh, in most other societies uh, is considered very offensive. Uh, so yeah, this this group is uh, no stranger to controversy. Yeah. So they they did kind of apologize for the the recent controversy, but mm-hmm. the question now is that is is Cohen going to allow this? Or is he going to allow this to slide um, for it's, an it's, international games? Exactly. Are they good a good group to you know be the spokespeople for uh, something where you know people from around the world are going to be coming to Taiwan? That's right, and you know from a lot of different backgrounds and so forth. Well, it's pretty interesting that uh, Nam, we, I'm still pretty sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but he said that the point of the video was to show these major religions because it had uh, the Prophet Muhammad and he was kind of uh, cavorting with the depiction of Jesus, the depiction of a Taoist monk, a depiction of a Buddhist monk. Uh, he said that it was, you know, to show the religions getting along and peace and harmony between religions. But if that was really your goal, why would you show Muhammad drinking and also brandishing uh, an assault rifle, which uh, also, you know, doesn't do you any favors it doesn't it, that, that, that's not a, a way to portray religious harmony and, and that explanation comes after the fact right mm-hmm. so again it seems more like it's a cop out it's it's a it's it's an explanation by way of a sort of brief apology you know, as, as brian described it uh, what was there a disclaimer at the start of the video the following video is meant to be fun and show uh, religions of the world getting along no mm-hmm. there wasn't Right, and they're still again. They're, they're just not contrite about it, mm. which is I think it's it's embarrassing not just for them, but it's embarrassing for Taiwan because, uh, as you mentioned, they were representing Taiwan as a public face of the upcoming university games. Mm. Um, at the same time, though, Namiwe was actually detained for four days in Malaysia. Um, I mean, Im- immediately when he came back to Malaysia, he was detained by the police, and before he that happened, he released a video of himself stripping naked to show that he had no injuries because you know the Malaysian police has a history of using torture. That was never mentioned by so, 911. So, so kind of what it feels. Like to me is you know he had a specific uh, artistic intention that related more to Malaysian politics. He kind of had mm-hmm. perhaps uh, an axe to grind with uh, Malaysian politics, and you bring that into Taiwan, and it just uh, doesn't have quite the same meaning. And it's just like, what? Why would you do that here? Yeah, there's there's very few discussion of that. There's very little discussion of that in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Though nine one one never raised that in their video too. Mm-hmm. Though I'm sure they knew he was detained. Well, I, I have zero sympathy for him being detained in Malaysia over the content of this video, simply because the what they call in, in frequently call in Singapore and Malaysia the out of bounds markers with regard to discussion of religion or, or racial issues are very well known and this clearly crossed the line so you're, you're basically asking for trouble in, in Malaysia or Singapore but by by producing this kind of video uh, but but also we, we should keep in mind even in Taiwan there's there's a very large Muslim population mm-hmm. um, m- many of them are, are domestic workers from from Indonesia it's hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not only about Malaysia, right? It's it's offending a, a large group of people who live here in Taiwan and make a significant contribution to Taiwan's economy, and it's just wrong. So hopefully, America will come out and and, and you know do what's necessary to disassociate the games and the city government from from this group. The the really ironic though, thing though is that in Taiwan, you know, AMOC from Singapore is hailed by a hero by a lot of people, but you know, he's done similar things. I mean, pushing the boundaries on Christianity and 
you know, Islam in in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think there's there's no un, you know there's no unambiguously correct person here, but. I mean, it, it raises so many questions for me. All right. Uh, so we are going to leave that whole conversation right there. Uh, not, not, not too many giggles in that one, unfortunately. Kind of a serious topic, but that's okay. It's uh, a conversation uh, that we should be having nonetheless uh, because of... Of course, uh, as, as Ross mentioned, uh, Taiwan's increasing diversity does mean that we uh, do need to be a little bit more aware of uh, how the things we do in the public sphere uh, affect everybody that calls Taiwan home. But that is going to be it for today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Uh, starting a little bit earlier, of course, uh, you can probably catch it around 8.15, 8.20, around about that time most weeks. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on ICRT iTunes, uh, occasionally the blog, if I have time for a post. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, uh, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, good night. Ross Feingold, thank you. Good night. And Brian Hugh. Thanks, Brian. Uh, good evening. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.